morning, everyone. Good to see you all and able to gather together and worship with one another. We are continuing along in a series as we look at the minor prophet Joel and how God speaks through Joel to a people who are wayward and neglectful and forgetful. And through Joel, he's encouraging his people to come back to the Lord where true life and true happiness and flourishing can be had. And so we're continuing in the series by looking at Joel chapter 2. And if you are able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. And I pray as I read this that we would have open hearts and minds to God speaking to us here this morning. But starting with verse 1, the prophet Joel says this, "'Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, and a great and powerful people. Their like was never, has never been before, nor will it be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on top, on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who ex executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is our God? And this is God's word. You could take your seats at this time. So we're continuing along in this series in which the basic message of Joel is to turn back to the Lord. And part of that idea is that in our sin, in our wayward hearts, we oftentimes devote and turn our hearts to the good things of this world that have become bigger than God himself. And sometimes when we do this, then we recognize our life begins to fracture. It begins to implode. It doesn't resonate or hum along in the way that the Bible promises. And the reason the life doesn't go this way is because the ultimate way that we can have flourishing a, a life that hums along smoothly, that we can navigate the complexities of life, is when we put first things first 
and come back to the Lord. And in Joel chapter 2, what the prophet is trying to show us is a continuation of the first chapter, but he's saying this is going to be a picture of disciplinary judgment that's coming to you. He said in chapter 1, it's going to be like locusts that's going to devastate their vegetation and livelihood. But now he's drawing this metaphor out, and he's giving us a clearer picture of what this desolation, this disciplinary love, this judgment is going to look like. He's giving us a crystal clear, poetic picture of what that's going to look like. And for us this morning, as 21st century modern people, I want to consider with you, what does this message about a judgment, about locusts, about an invading Babylon army mean for us here today in North Orange County? And I think there are two points that we could look at here because the passage is broken up in two sections. So point number one, we're going to look at the judgment of God. He likes to call this the day of the Lord. And that comes to us in verses 1 to 11. And then secondly, we're going to look at something very basic to the Christian life, repentance. And that comes to us in verses 12 to 17. So we're going to look at this chapter in this section, the day of the Lord, verses 1 to 11, which is the judgment of God. And then we're going to look at a return to life by repentance in verses 12 to 7, 12 to 17. So let's look at this together. First, the judgment of God. Joel fleshes out the nature of judgment in verses 1 to 11. And if you recognize the nature of prophecy, it's full of imagery. It's powerful. He's painting a picture for us. And it shows us a powerful image of devastation, of military might. It's fierce. Verses 1 to 11 is going to show us a picture that is daunting and scary and relentless. And Joel calls this the day of the Lord. It's a judgment day. And the day of the Lord is in verses 1 to 11 because in verse 1, as well in verse 11, there's day of the Lord. There's that phrase. So it sandwiches and brackets off this section. And day of the Lord basically means this, friends. For those who reject God, the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to be a holy and righteous judgment for your rebellion and rejection. It's going to be dark. It's going to be a punishment. It's going to be a separation. And it's meant to actually be really scary. You don't have to shy away from that for those of us who reject God and neglect him. It's a very scary image. But for those who believe in God, his own people, the day of the Lord is going to be a message of hope. It's a promise that all the promises in the Bible and all the realities of the kingdom heavenly hope will finally and fully be realized in the person and work of Jesus. So for those who reject God, it's going to be punishment and judgment. For those of us who accept God, it's going to be a message of hope, a ray of light in the darkest of times. And that's what Joel wants us to understand. But what's scary about Joel chapter 2 is that this day of the Lord that we see is about military might and procession and devastation, a judgment. This fierce and dark time of judgment is actually a judgment that's coming to God's people. So that's sort of the flip. You realize that this judgment oftentimes goes to God's enemies, but for the first time in Joel 2, this judgment that's fierce and dark, the day of the Lord, is coming to God's people, but it's going to be a dark judgment. It's going to be devastation. It's going to be something that normally comes to God's enemies, but now comes to God's family. And that's why there's such a response from God's people. Really quickly in verse 6, it says, before them, people are in anguish. They're so scared that their faces literally grow pale. 
because God is flipping the switch on them. And this is the point, friends. It's not as if God is wishy-washy and turning his back. He's saying that the neglect and the forgetfulness of his people is so bad. It's so bad that this punishment that oftentimes goes to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and enemy armies is finally coming to you as God's people. Now, it's a disciplinary love, but it's still a very strong judgment for our neglect and for our spiritual amnesia. And what Joel does here to give us a sense of the judgment that's coming, he's conveying the day of the Lord in a sense of telling us this judgment is going to be an undoing, a reversal, a deconstruction of the book of Genesis. Because Genesis gives us in the Garden of Eden a picture of life, doesn't it? Even if you grew up in the church, you know what Genesis represents. There's a plush garden, there's fruits, there's a river running through this, the soil is fertile, community is perfect, Adam and Eve live in harmony with each other, with the animals, with the birds and the fish, and most importantly, they live in harmony with God. It's a picture, literally, of that word, paradise. But Joel's saying that this judgment, because of our sin, is a reversal and undoing of all the promises and the flourishing of life given to us in Genesis. That's why there's a reference to the garden in verse 3. Let's read that together. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So he's contrasting in verse 3, this was life in the garden, but because of your sin, now it's a desolate, barren land. He's going to undo and reverse all the flourishing, all what the Jewish terminology likes to call shalom, and says, I'm going to reverse all that. I'm going to flip it up inside out and upside down. And he's contrasting this flourishing life in the garden with this empty life of death. It's a day of dark judgment, and finally, it's coming to God's people. It's coming to Judah. It's coming to God's very own because of our sin, our rebellion, our forgetfulness, our waywardness, our worldliness. It's coming to his people. That's why in verses 1 to 2, Joel sounds a trumpet. It's basically like a World War II siren that says, okay, everybody on guard, there's something urgent. But verses 1 to 2a, it says this, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming to God's people. It's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, because Joel's audience is going to be Jewish, they knew their Old Testament well. That's why they referenced the Garden of Eden. And you may know your Old Testament well, too. So Joel is showing and tracking really the way that God relates to his people throughout biblical history. So he starts in Genesis, but in verses 1 to 2, he brings them to the time of Exodus. Exodus, for those of us who've been watching movies for a long time, is about Moses, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. The old school movie is Charleston Heston. He goes, he plays Moses, and the Ten Commandments come down in Mount Sinai. But verses 1 to 2 is a reference to actually the Exodus rebellion to the Egyptians. Because in verses 1 to 2, you basically have a reference to Exodus in plagues 8, 9, and 10 of the 10 plagues that we see in Exodus. Because God sends 10 plagues to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their rebellion, for their oppression. And Joel wants to reference this and say, well, we're going to undo the flourishing in the Garden of Eden. And you know what? There's also going to be a different kind of the plagues of 8, 9, and 10 that Pharaoh experienced, but now God's own people is going to get a taste of that, that plague. You know, plagues 8, 9, and 10 are basically plague 8 is locusts, 
which they experienced. It's going to be darkness, which they'll experience. And the greatest and harshest one is going to be death of the firstborn son. And so they're going to experience all these plagues. And this is his point. The point that Joel is trying to make is this. Ultimately, when you trace this pattern from Genesis to Exodus to Joel, follow that line through, and you'll see that there's a little bit of hope because all these plagues ultimately fall on someone else if you just turn to God. Well, what do I mean by this? The ultimate curse, the ultimate plague, the ultimate judgment falls on Jesus Christ if you believe in Jesus, and he'll take your place and experience that plague for you. Jesus will experience the deconstruction of the promises of Genesis for you. Because when you look at the Gospels and you look at when Jesus died on the cross in any of the Gospels, Jesus died, and what does it say on the cross? There was thick darkness over the land. So darkness that was in Genesis that God controlled, darkness that comes as a way that's judgment to Joel, to his people. Jesus Christ experiences that punishment and that plague because when he died on the cross, there was really deep darkness that covered the face of the land. And just like the 10th plague, where God sent a punishment and killed the firstborn son of all the Egyptians in the 10th plague, Jesus takes that plague upon himself because God the Father sent his only begotten son and punished and poured his wrath on Jesus and killed his own son. He took that plague for you and me. The 10th and greatest plague. He killed his only begotten son at Calvary. And the greatest of all covenant curses is to be cut off from the presence of God. And Jesus experienced that on the cross. He fulfilled Isaiah 53, 8, where it says he was cut off from the living of the land. And that's what we're talking about here, friends. That's the judgment that comes to you, but with a ray of hope. Now, even in Matthew 27, 45, he captures really a picture of what Joel is talking about in this image. Now, just what I said, Matthew 27, 45 says, Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. That's the ninth plague. And then later on in Matthew 27, 51, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two as Jesus died, and from top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, they're talking about there's an earthquake there, but we also see in our passage in Joel chapter 2, there is also an earthquake in verse 10. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble. So what we're seeing here is that the judgment that we see in Joel, you see there's locust, you see there's darkness, you see there's separation, you see that there's death, you see that there's a trumpet, you see that there's an earthquake. All those images find their placement and fulfillment on Jesus. And it's saying this, for all you and me, here's the application. If you neglect God and you follow your career, you follow your family, you idolize your children, which is a tough one, I get. If you have all these really good things in the world, but if you pursue and invest all your energy and resources into these things, this judgment, that's loving discipline, is for you. Your life is going to implode. It's not going to resonate. You may have a temporary joy of bliss, but it's not going to last that's the promise. I can guarantee that if you love things more than God and devote more energy and time to God, other things than God, if you find your identity and sense of worth in things of this world more than God, he's saying, you neglected me, you forgot me, and there's going to be a loving discipline that's going to be the quote-unquote locus of your life, and your life is going to implode. But if you believe in Jesus, 
for those of us who accept Christ as our Savior, he's saying all the punishment and all the judgment that you see for Judah through Joel is finally and climatically experienced by Jesus Christ, and he takes on your locusts. He takes on the darkness that covered the land. He takes on the death of dying as the only firstborn and begotten son of God the Father for you, so that now you have a hope to navigate the complexities of life in shalom, in flourishing, in joy, contentment, and happiness. That's what point one is about. Now, verse 11 captures this sort of idea, and he says this climatically. Verse 11 is really the section that's, that verse is probably the, the center of this section that I've just read. It says, the Lord utters his voice before his army, and for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And he ends this question rhetorically, this day is so strong, who can endure it? And he's saying, you're not going to be able to endure it. Judah and the Israelites are not going to be able to endure it. This day of the Lord is great. It's going to be an army, exceedingly great. His word is powerful. Who can endure it? And his answer comes to us in the New Testament. Jesus did. He's the only one that can endure it. Centuries later, he endured the punishment that you're supposed to receive. He endured all the plagues that you're supposed to receive. He endured the judgment that the Judah and Israelites were supposed to receive. He, he was, he's the only one as a perfect man that was able to endure this, and he's your out. He's your hope. He's the one that actually you could turn to and find your sense of worth and your life and your flourishing, that even though the world around you is in chaos, your union with Christ could give you the resources and sustenance to face all of the hardship of God that he throws at you with strength. That's the point. Well, before we go to point number two, let me just add a little bit more of application to kind of draw this out a little bit. Uh, sometimes life feels very dark, doesn't it? It feels dark, and around you it seems dark. You know, it's a little bit gray. There's, there's people that struggle with depression. There's people that struggle with failure, people that struggle with marital difficulties. You know, I think students at New Life Youth, you struggle with all kinds of social pressure and academic pressure from social media, students around you, your parents. There's all kinds of difficulty in this world. And sometimes that means that life feels very dark, doesn't it? That imagery captures the experience so well. It's a bit scary. You feel a little bit lost. You can't see in front of you. You don't know the next step or choice to make. You feel out of touch. You feel alone. That actually is the experience of the Israelites. That is the experience of modern-day people like you and me. But here's the encouragement, hopefully. Not that Jesus also just experienced the darkness for you. But if you look in this passage, the darkness in Joel chapter 2 is controlled and is sent by God. He sends the locusts. He sends the Babylonian army. He sends the darkness. Now, God is not the author of evil. But God shows that even evil and suffering is under the sovereign, loving control of God. And that's a great theological truth you've got to struggle with, but it at least means this. In the darkest moments of your life, where you feel lost and alone and life seems to be imploding, realize that God is fully there with you, and he's controlling that darkness. He's using it. We may not know why he's allowing this darkness to happen, but we know the who of the darkness that God is with us. 
not just a father, but he's saying, I love you so much in the darkest moments that you're experiencing now, the suffering, and I'm sending my son Jesus because he took that darkness on for you. And it's going to hurt right now, and it's going to be painful, but realize that the darkness in Joel 2 and the darkness of our lives today is controlled and under the sovereign, loving discipline of a heavenly father who loves you and his son, Jesus Christ. And he gives you a ray of hope, a dawning of the light in his son, Jesus, and the resurrection of his son. God's character doesn't change. He doesn't just control the good things of this world. He controls the hard things of this world. God does, he doesn't change. He doesn't control the celebrations of this world, the victories and joys of this world, but he also celebrates, but he also controls the brokenness of this world, the failures and disappointments of this world, the suffering of this world. And no other religion, no other philosophical system, no other worldview has a God who is like the Christian God. No one has a God that is sovereign and can use the suffering and the darkness of your life and sent his only son to walk alongside of you and endure with you the darkness of your life. And this leads us to our second point. Because in Jesus, the way you could turn to him and to God is going to be through repentance. Let me say this before we get into repentance a little bit. When you think about life, they say the day that you're first born is the first day that you're heading towards death. And they also say that when you lose things in life, that it helps you to value what you lost. So death helps you to value things in life. I think there's wisdom in that. I think the Bible can affirm that. And I think there's, some, there's something beautiful about that. But one thing I think is that sometimes in our culture that death seems to take too much of a hold in our lives, that the everyday decisions that you and I make seem to be guided by this notion of death. No, we want to look younger. We want to prevent death. And especially for those of us who are type A and controlling, it seems that the north star of your decisions is going to be death. And that's what guides your life. If you're really honest about it, that's really what's undergirding your life. Death and suffering is your north star that guides everything, your insurance, your age, your body, your controlling nature over your kids or your career. Guide, death seems to be your guide and north star. And I think there's a place and a wisdom for that, but I don't know if that's really what the Christian life is. Because if death guides your life, then you better just stick with point one in the sermon of the locusts in the darkness. But the real pope of Christianity and the purpose of life is going to be the life you have in God that you turn and you repent. There's a Holocaust survivor, a professor who in a memoir that he was writing when he was contemplating mortality during emergency heart surgery, Ellie Weasel, and I'm just paraphrasing, said this, we sanctify life, not death. Death is not meant to guide us. It is life that will show us the way. Because when death guides us, then it's all about prevention and controlling and anxiety and criticism and criticality. But life is meant to show us the way. I don't know if this guy's a believer, but I think he has something right about this. Now, I have a friend, more of an acquaintance. It's more Kathy's friend, but we met, and she's a, a single mother. This is her story, but it's always public. A wonderful writer. She writes in the New York Times. She writes in the Atlantic. She's an author. She's a singer. She's a poet. And she was a dear friend, and she tragically lost her husband 
a good number of years ago, and she said, on that day, which was a handful of years ago, she felt like death took on a different experience in her life. But then she shared an article she wrote in the Huffington Post, and she was talking about how all of a sudden she had a turn, and that life actually seemed to be the guiding light. So she wrote this article, and it said, I started preparing for my death when I was 34. I think she's like 45 now. Here's what I've learned about living. And just something, just kind of paraphrasing this. There's not a quote there, but it's a paraphrase. She says, someone once told me that planning is a form of hope. Because when you plan something, you're hoping that your plans will actually happen. So maybe living means making plans despite how vulnerable those plans ultimately are. To quote the Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying. This is my point, friends. I wonder if, like at New Life and myself in our culture today, it's too much about death and suffering that guides our lives. But really what the Bible shows us, and I'm about to show you in point two, is that life will show us the way. You either get busy living or you get busy dying. This life for us, this hope, this promise that we see in the Garden of Eden and will finally find fulfillment in the person of Jesus can only happen when you turn and repent and turn to Christ. That's why, like, if you read verse 12, it says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, which are really the Jewish practice of repentance. But that first phrase, yet even now, is so powerful because there's probably no community. I actually think that the Judah, the Israelites in Judah in this passage were far worse than a lot of communities and churches today in their selfishness and their waywardness and neglectfulness. I think they were far worse. Just read the history books. Their sexual promiscuity, their neglect. I mean, these were the chosen people of God. And as bad as they were, for as generations, as long as they were, there are sweet words that come to us in verse 12 that said, yet even now. You may think that you've strayed too far. You may think the darkness is too deep. You may think that you forgot about God and neglected him. You may think you have skeletons in your closet that are so deep that you can't share with anyone. How can anyone love you? How can anyone forgive you? How can God pursue you? But no matter how rebellious and how long and how neglectful, if you turn to God, verse 12 is you, and it also says to you specifically, yet even now. It's never too late. There's always an opportunity God's heart is always open for you. Joel moves from the plight of his people to the character of God that takes center stage. And he's saying the reason yet even now is true is because of who God is in his character. There's so much to say in verses 12 to 17. We don't have time to go through this, but I want to look at the character of God. Read with me verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and he is merciful. He is gracious and he is merciful. The reason why in your sin, yet even now, holds true is because God is gracious and he's merciful. And there's sort of synonym words there, synonymous. They're merciful. He's merciful and gracious. Now, one way I want to try to bring this out to hopefully encourage you to turn to him is looking at the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, this is how the apostle Paul introduces his greeting in his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort. That word in the New Testament, mercies, is the same word in verse 13 of our passage, merciful. You know, it's the same word when you look at what they call the Septuagint. And I'm getting this insight from a guy by the name of Dane Ortland, who wrote this book called Gentle and Lowly, and he has one chapter called The Father of Mercies. And I think it's so profound and applies so well to Joel chapter 2. He's saying the reason that you can yet even now turn to God is because God, in his essence, in his character, is merciful. It's not just he's kind of like mercy-like. It's who he is in his character. He exudes mercy. Do you know what that means? In the same way that when a father begets children, the children reflect the father, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says God is the father of mercies. He's saying there is something familiar there that mercy reflects who God is in his nature and his character. God is mercy. Mercy resembles him. He can't turn it off. It's always overflowing. It's always there for you. He multiplies compassionate mercies to his needful wayward and wandering people because that's exactly who God is. Now, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he actually multiplies this in this perspective, and he says this, God has a multitude of all kinds of mercies. Is our hearts and our lives has a multitude and a buffet and a variety of all kinds of sins, for every type of sin and every type of rebellion that we have, God has in his repertoire of mercies a matching mercy to meet that sin. There is no sin or misery that God cannot match with his very own mercy. He has a multitude of different mercies of every kind. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If your heart is sick, he has a mercy to heal it. If your heart is sinful, he has a mercy to cleanse it. Inasmuch as there's a variety of sins in the repertoire of our sinful heart, there's a matching variety of mercies in the character of God because he's the father of mercies, and he begets mercy to his children. Yet even now, you can come to him because of his merciful heart. That's why the commandments for you and me come to us in verse 12 and 13. Return to me, he says, with all your heart. Rend your hearts. Rip it open. Repent, not your garments. Now, we don't have time to go in this, but basically he says, don't rip your clothes, only rip your hearts. He's saying, don't fake repentance. And probably we're really good at that. Pastors are really good at that. Don't fake repentance. Don't be disingenuous. Be what we like, according to a lot of the verbiage. Be authentic. Don't just rip your clothes and come up and pretend you're repenting. Show it. Turn to God and do it. Rend your hearts. Rip it open. And he says in verse 12, return to me with all your heart. See, some of you may turn to God, but do you turn to God with all your heart? You know what that means? It means that you don't just turn to God when you want forgiveness, when you messed up. He says, return to him with everything that you got. Return to God with your work. Return to God with your marriage. Return to God with your children. Children, new life youth, return to God with your academics, with your social media, with your friendships, with your parents. Return to God with your money. Return to God with all the 
variety and multiplicity of the idols within your hearts. And he's saying, I want all of your heart. I don't just want a portion of it. And do you know what else that also means? It means that he just doesn't want all of your heart at one particular time. So from 10 a.m. to 11.15 a.m. of every Sunday, you can't just give all your heart. He's saying all your heart means I want all of your heart Sunday through Saturday in every compartment of your heart. There's nothing in your heart that you can't leave out. The hardest idol to let go, the most sensitive aspect that you can't agree with and confess. He says, I want all of this. And then and only then, we begin to have life. Because death is not meant to lead your life. Life is the way that will show the way. Life in Christ, life in God, as you turn to him. Because as much as you have sinned and you neglected him and you have all the sins in your heart that you jacked up your life, verse 12 holds to you, yet even now, God is still merciful and gracious. Rip open your clothes, rip open your heart, return to God in Christ Jesus with all your heart and all that you got in every moment of your life. Then and only then, you get a taste of this flourishing life promised in Eden fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much that you are a father of mercies, that you are grace. We thank you because we confess that we are more rebellious and sinful and selfish in ways that we don't even recognize, but yet even now we can turn to you with all our heart with all our soul and mind. I pray, Lord, that you would help Jesus, who suffered all our plagues and judgment, be the center and the reason why we could find wholeness and healing and restoration with you, Heavenly Father. Make this true of New Life Press. We ask this in the power and the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.